I'd like to read and speak from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so whatever you need to do to get that in front of you, if you have a Bible on your device or in your hand. I was first saved by God's grace when I was about nine years old, and in the 20 years since then, I have been constantly amazed as I learn and grow to discover just how powerfully and precisely God's gospel touches the very needs and problems in our lives. First, very generally, like knowing our deepest need, our broadest need, our most significant need, but, but not just that. In the, in the details of life, the gospel just keeps working in my pride and in my fears and uh, in my insecurities and and all the things, all the troubles in my life. Over the years, I become more and more amazed at how the gospel works and fits down into the details of what's going on in my heart and what I need in my life. It just amazes me how wise God has been to formulate such a gospel that works so effectively into the details of my life. I've also been somewhat amazed at just how common, how easy, and how often we disconnect the power of the gospel from the troubles, the specific details, the the anxieties and the the fears and the pride in in our own hearts. How easy it is to to disconnect and sort of get up. Okay, I got to go work on this thing. I need some help in this thing. But the gospel ends up somehow getting marginalized while we go to work on this issue in my life. If we've ever been in a season where our strengths have been tested and our weaknesses have been exposed, it's in the one we are currently in. What many are left with is a sort of spiritual fatigue, a sense of weariness with the present trials, maybe causing us to wonder just how important is what we're doing actually? Is this really making any difference? Is God really at work? Do we, is there really any significance to our lives, what we're doing, what we're investing in? Is it, does it matter? The resurrection of Jesus is fundamental to the gospel itself. R.C. Sproul wrote once, authentic Christianity stands or falls with the space-time event of Jesus' resurrection. Everything rests on this reality of Christ being raised from the dead. And what I want to talk about today, don't want you to miss this, that the resurrection is the key to the gospel's remedy for faint-heartedness, for weariness of soul, for wondering if it's all worth it, wondering if we should keep going. It's the resurrection that is that element, that aspect of the gospel that specifically comes in and addresses and meets that issue in our hearts. So I wanted to look at first. Uh, Corinthians chapter 15 because it's an extraordinary chapter on the resurrection. It's extraordinary because it tells us so many details about the resurrection, but it's also extraordinary because it takes those truths of the resurrection and so fixes it and plants it 
inside our hearts in such a way that it actually strengthens us, equips us, makes us stronger. And so my hope and my prayer is that here's the reality of looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, every one of us could leave this meeting more encouraged, more motivated, more filled with joy, more able to endure, more steadfastness. That's what the whole chapter is going to land on one verse of application that we want to focus on this morning. So my plan is I would like to just walk through. It's going to be a bit of a brisk walk through the chapter and look at Paul's arguments and comments about the resurrection and then get ourselves to his application and make that application. And this is the essence of it all. The resurrection of Christ is the gospel's power for us to live today, to live for Christ in a fallen world. We want to make the connection between the resurrection, because that is the power of God in the gospel, to equip and enable you and me, every one of us, to live life today in the present for his glory in a fallen world. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read the first six verses together. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. First, Paul lays out a few facts about the resurrection. He opens by saying, I'm reminding you of the message that I gave to you. In other words, you don't need a new message. You need the same message. I remind you of what I preached and what you have already received just because we become faint-hearted. Just because we lose our way, that doesn't mean we need a different message. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with the message. We've we got to avoid saying, well, this thing isn't working for me. Therefore, I have to look for something else. Or there we have to alter the message. Paul would have none of it. If you lose your way, if you forget, if you don't comprehend it, what you need is the same message. I can't give you a different message. If I gave you a different message, there would be no power in it. Why would I give you something that I know doesn't work? I can only come back and say, I have to give you the same message because this is the one that has the Spirit of God on it that works so powerfully. This is what fixes your soul. So let me go back and tell you what I told you before, what you believed before, because this is the thing you need. This is the truth that you need. And so he goes on to say that the resurrection is of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. And here are the absolutely essential parts. Christ died. 
Christ was buried. Christ was raised. Physical, factual, historical, observable, provable, death, burial, resurrection. This is our starting point. For the effect to be real and powerful, for the spiritual to be real, the natural has to be real. These things needed to take place according to the scripture. In order for the spiritual realities to be a reality at all, these things had to actually take place. And then he gives us some proof. The witnesses, the eyewitnesses, the 12, the 500 plus, and on goes the list. And so what is so compelling about this statement is that this letter was apparently written about 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. And Paul puts himself forward and says, I just want you to know of these 500 people, several of them are still alive. In other words, you could go and talk to them. You could verify what I'm telling you. There's people still alive that are eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Quite a bold statement. If the resurrection was just made up, if this was just a story, maybe Paul was a gambler. Maybe I'm just going to roll the dice and nobody's going to take me up on this. I doubt it. He's saying, listen, there are eyewitnesses you could go and talk to. You could interact with some of these people. Some of them have fallen asleep, but not all of them. There's still time. If you're a skeptic, if you doubt, I've got a list of names that you can go to and tell me, what did you see? And they would tell you with full confidence, I saw the risen Lord. I saw the Savior. There's the foundation. Those are some of the facts that Paul begins as he's working something into our soul to make sure that by the time this chapter is done, you and I will know our labor is not in vain. That's where it's going. Second, Paul goes on in verses 12 to 19 about the importance of the resurrection. And he responds to a question or a, or a, a belief that there is no such thing as a resurrection. So he's going to respond to this idea. And that statement is what is known as a defeater belief. Tim Keller writes, writes about these defeater beliefs, and he describes it this way. Every culture hostile to Christianity holds a set of common sense, consensus beliefs that automatically make Christianity seem implausible to people. These are what philosophers call defeater beliefs. A defeater belief is belief A that if true means that belief B can't be true. In other words, belief A, people don't rise from the dead. Therefore, belief B, Jesus could not have risen from the dead. That's one of the things that he was up against. But Paul lays this out and begins to explain, here's what we lose if Jesus was not resurrected. He says, if there was no resurrection, well, then Christ was not raised. Not only that, but all our preaching has been in vain. And by the way, your faith is in vain. And we have been misrepresenting God. And you and I are still in our sins. And anyone who has already died remains dead forever. And finally, oh, just one more thing, one more piece of icing on the cake. We, as Christians, are the people most to be pitied. We will, in the end, look at the most 
as the most pitiful people. People are going to feel sorry for us. We have wasted our lives. This gathering was for nothing. Every Sunday we gather, every song we sang, every dollar you gave, every hour you served, your labor was all in vain if Christ was not raised from the dead. Without the resurrection, it's all just a house of cards. Now, to the atheist, they would smile and nod. Go ahead, check those boxes. Yes, that's true. Christ did not. Yes, your labor is in vain. Yeah, you shouldn't be doing this. It's all a bunch of nonsense. But Paul's point is to us and to every follower of Christ, wanting to help you and I to understand that Christ was raised from the dead, and therefore the preaching is not in vain. It is, in fact, meaningful, and your faith, it is real, and it is effective, and God is honestly being represented, and we are no longer in our sins, and those who have died in Christ do have hope for glory. Oh, and by the way, we as Christians are not to be pitied, but actually we are the ones to have the most cause to rejoice. Verses 20 to 34, he goes on with more implications about the resurrection. As he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised. And here is what that means. And then he goes on to talk about Christ's resurrection being the first fruits. The first fruits were like the, the earliest part of the harvest. And these were like the best fruits, the earliest fruits and in that sense that metaphor represents christ very well christ was the first to come forward and he was the best to come forward and so he is therefore the first fruits but paul's use of the word and his meaning here goes beyond that because the first fruit is not just the earliest and the best it is it is an assurance of a greater harvest that is to follow so while there's a, a little bit of first fruits, the best and the first and the earliest, that is meant to be a sign of a greater, more grand harvest that is to come in mass because you see the first fruits. It's to encourage and to assure that something more is coming out of that tree. But of course, here we're not talking actually about fruit on a tree. We're talking about new life. We're talking about Christ being raised from the dead. And so here Paul goes into this, us being in Adam and now being in Christ. And here is the story of the Bible on a, on a three by five card. Every one of us born as a human being are born in Adam. Adam sinned, rebelled against God. And all of us have come from that man and have inherited from that man, that state of rebellion against God. We're all born in Adam. We've got this stuck problem that we need rescuing from. And then Christ comes as the second Adam and lays down his life. And in the same way that Adam represented all of us in sin and death, so Christ comes and represents all of us in new life. So now it is Christ's resurrection that shows and guarantees what we will be. We see Christ risen from the grave, and what we see is what we will be. 
the implication of this. Another one is this, this means that we're able to endure suffering well today. Paul takes some time in this letter to refute a kind of false triumphalism. The idea that we're supposed to claim and assume all the blessings of Christ now in this present moment, like we have all things in Christ, no, which is a very true statement, a statement that Paul himself would have written. In one sense, we have everything in Christ. But when there is this presumption that we have that in the fullest extent, in all its glory, and we must insist on it and claim it right now, then we're off our track and off the game, and we're missing, as Paul says in Romans 8, uh, how do you, why would you hope for something that you already have? We live with the hope of what the resurrection also promises us in the future. If you have it already, why would you hope for it? That doesn't make any sense. He really attacks his problem back in chapter 4, in verse 8 through 13. I'd like to just sort of read it to you. He tells these people that are believing this, well, we have everything now, this sort of triumphalism. He says, oh, already you have all what you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you become kings and a, a wood that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. So we are fools for Christ's sake, but, but you, you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute to present uh, to the present hour. Notice that, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Now, at this point, his tone changes, and the sarcasm is set to the side, and he makes this marvelous statement about true resurrection power in the life of the Christian today. He says it this way, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's tearing down this over-realized eschatology, tearing down this triumphalism. He says, look, we do have all things in Christ. Let me show you what it looks like. Because when you have what you need in Christ, you're able to endure sufferings. You're able to endure trials. There is the power of Christ's resurrection in you, in your life, in my life. He says, look, if the resurrection of Christ meant that at this moment we have arrived and we have everything there is to have in Christ, he says, well, then why are we in danger every hour? Why am I fighting wild beasts in Ephesus? Why are we having all this trouble? Why am I poor and homeless? Why are we hungry? Why are we weak? That's not what the resurrection did. Although what the resurrection did do was give a supernatural power to endure suffering, to respond in Christ-like ways to the suffering and to the trials. So without the resurrection, we become unwilling and unable to endure suffering if there's no resurrection he says if this life is all there is what does he say well eat drink be happy for tomorrow we die in other words listen if we lose sight of the resurrection 
We slip into an immoral lifestyle that is not pleasing to the Lord. If you don't have hope of the future, then life in the present loses its way. If there's no resurrection to look forward to, then we've got to make the most of this life. And why would we make the most of this life? By doing the things that we're doing. Oh, we should run out and have a great time. We should eat. We should drink. We should be married. We should get all the gusto that you can if this life is all there is. It's the resurrection that saves you from that delusion. On the other side, that triumphalism that I was just talking about, saying that we're supposed to have it all, all now, leaves us so often so seriously disillusioned when trials come. Those are the times when we start saying, this Christianity thing is just not working for me. I'm not getting everything I was expected to get. I thought it was supposed to solve all the problems, take all the temptations away. I thought it was supposed to give me a life of prosperity and blessings and nothing but good and keep the trouble at bay. I think my labor's been in vain. I feel like my labor in the kingdom, my gospel labor has been in vain because there's so much trouble in my life. Paul is refuting that. The resurrection is the solution to that. One more thing about the nature of the resurrection. When he addresses the question, with what kind of body will we be raised? He's got people asking him questions. What does this resurrection look like? What will it be like? And he points out that there's a real contrast to this body and the future body. Like an acorn is to an oak tree. Like an apple seed is to an apple tree. He says it's like a seed being sown. And what grows is not the same thing as what the seed itself is. So understand this. Being in Christ in this life is like life in a seed form. And the resurrection is the fruit from that seed. Altogether more. Altogether more glorious altogether bigger and better, more significant. It comes from the first, but it is not the same. So he goes to on to say, we go from perishable, the acorn, the seed, perishable to imperishable, dishonor to glory, weakness to power, a natural body to a spiritual body, mortal to immortality. There's the contrast could you find greater contrast to say we go from here to there? And how do you describe here? And how do you describe there? Oh, let's find the, the greatest superlatives of weakness and strength, dishonor and glory. That's the resurrection. That's your resurrection. That's my resurrection. So for, for those of us in Christ, Death is now being spoken of as simply falling asleep. And we wake up to this wonderful shout, this wonderful poem that we've already heard in this chapter. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where, uh, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the glory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Proving that our labor was not in vain. And we get to that very last word. The very last verse in the chapter. 
point of application. Let me just do a little thought process with you. Most of you listening to me believe everything in this chapter, but not everybody. Do something with me. Assume. Assume for a moment that everything in this chapter is as it's written. And everything in this chapter is true. It's a provable fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And this verifies that the message that we have believed is true. This proves and so it follows that our faith has been well-placed. It goes on to say that God has been accurately represented throughout this message. And that now dying to us is no more trouble than falling asleep. And rather than being most pitied, even though we might be most despised in this life, we become in Christ the most honored. Assume with me that all those things are true and think about this and think about this question. What kind of a life would be produced if all those things were true? What kind of a life would be lived today if all those things were true? What would your life look like? What would my life look like if that list of as we walk through this chapter and we checked all the boxes and we, we, we left with assurance that everything that Paul, every point he made, yes, it's true, yes, it's true, all these things are true, and we get to the end, and what would we look like? It would have to produce this unusually strong life. This unusual ability to endure even in the hardest of circumstances. My point is that this is the absolute best remedy for living for Christ in a fallen world. Knowing, believing in the resurrection. And so here's verse 58. Therefore... My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The resurrection of Christ. Paul builds the case that that resurrection, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, is the very thing that equips you and me in this moment to be immovable, steadfast, to be able to endure, to abound in the work of the Lord and know with assurance in our heart that our labor is absolutely not in vain. Have you ever wondered I know you have. Is what I'm doing really making a difference at all? Does anybody even know what I'm doing or what I'm going through? Is what I'm doing actually producing anything good? Where's the fruit? Where's the reward? What can I see? Does it really make a difference? I've been coming, I've been serving, I've been giving, I've been participating, I've done this, I've done that. Have you ever stopped to wonder 
Is it all really about anything? The resurrection is telling you, absolutely is, absolutely is, your labor. Now, what labor are we talking about here? We want to be careful we don't just sort of personalize some bizarre application and, you know, you're trying to finish that college degree and so don't give up, your labor's not in vain, or you're trying to get that new job, well, don't give up because your labor's not in vain. No, Paul is talking about something a little bit more specific here. Your gospel labor. What is done in the name of Christ. But this is broad as well. Look, you're seeking after God. It's gospel work. Your personal pursuit of righteousness. Your believing in the gospel. Your humbling yourself before God's word. This is all gospel work. Gathering with God's people, regular corporate worship, engaging and participating when we meet together on Sundays, engaging and participating in our smaller groups, in our community groups. It is gospel work. Your labor is not in vain. Serving, giving, praying, sharing is gospel work. Hospitality within the church and without the church is gospel work. Your labor is not in vain. Let me invite the worship team up as I, as I close. This is the simple point. It's the resurrection of Jesus that assures you and assures me that our gospel labor is not in vain. As we understand and look at the resurrection, it lays out a future hope. It lays out a future glory. And it says what you are investing now, what you are doing now, what you are pursuing now, how you're living your life, how you're responding to the gospel today, how you're growing in your faith. Oh, these things will all bear fruit. Even the smallest of effort, the Lord sees and knows. And oh, on that day when we see him, all in his glory, and we are changed into his likeness, and we come into that fullness of the resurrection for ourselves. Oh, it will all make sense. And we will know then, and we should know today, without a shadow of a doubt, your labor is not in vain. Let's stand. Father, my prayer has been that this simple statement of our labor not being in vain would be something that your spirit would work into discouraged and disheartened hearts this afternoon. And I ask that you would take that, that phrase that was from your book inspired from your lips originally authored for our souls and I ask Lord that you'd help us to make that 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 connection that when you raised your son from the dead that in part what happens with that is a power of your spirit working in us to be strengthened to endure, to be immovable, 
to trust, to be filled with joy, to persevere, to look to our future with hope and anticipation and gladness. We thank you for resurrection power in our lives. Fill each one with that power in Jesus' name.